Chapter 15 of The Castle of Twilight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Courtney Miller. The Castle of Twilight by Margaret Horton Potter. Chapter 15 The Rising Tide. Summer was on the world again, and with its coming, melancholy was banished for a season from the crepuscule. With the first northward flight of storks, a new air, a breath of hidden life and gaiety, crept into the castle household, and, in the early days of June, broke forth in a riot of pleasures, carols, garland-weaving parties, and hunting. As in former times, Laura was now the moving spirit in every sport, and, to the general amazement, Madame, who in her younger days had been celebrated at the chase, herself headed one of the rabbit hunts, in that day a favorite pastime with women. The country around the crepuscule was as beautiful in summer as it was desolate in winter, for the moorlands were one gay tangle of many-colored wildflowers. The cultivated land around the peasants' homes was thick with various crops, and the cool green depths of the forest hid beauties surpassing all those of the open country. The stables of the crepuscule were well supplied with horses, for the family, both women and men, had always been persistent riders. In these June days the womenfolk, Madame and Laura and the Demoiselles rode early and late, deserting wheel, loom, and tambour frame to revel in a much-needed rest and change of occupation. Only Lenore refused to take part in the sports, finding pleasure enough at home with the child, who was growing to be a fine, lusty infant, with a smile as ready as if she had been born in Rennes. And the mother and child were happy enough to sit all day in the flower-strewn meadow, between the north wall and the dry moat, playing together with bright posies, watching the movements of the birds in the open falconry, and sometimes taking part in quieter revels with the others. Ere June was gone, the demoiselles were scarcely to be recognized for the pale, heavy-eyed, pallid things that had been wont to assemble in the great hall after supper on winter evenings to listen to the stories told round the fire. Now their laughter was ever ready, their feet light for the dance, their cheeks brown, and their eyes bright with a continual riot in sunlight and sea winds. Winter lay behind, like the shadow of an ugly dream, and now, of a sudden, God's world, and with it le crepuscule, became beautiful for man. In the first week of July, however, the period of gaiety was checked by the loss of four members of the household. Two of the demoiselles of noble family, whom Madame had taken to train as gentlewomen of rank, Bert de Montfort and Isabelle de Joinville, had now been in le crepuscule the customary time for the acquirement of etiquette and the arts of needlework, and escorts arrived from their homes to convoy them away. After their departure, the squires Louis of Florence and Robert Milot resigned their places and rode out into the world to seek a life of action. There were now left in Le Crepuscule the demoiselles whom Lenore had brought with her from Rennes a year ago, and two others who had come to Madame many years ago, and who must perforce stay on, having no other home than this, living as they did upon Madame's bounty. And there were also two young squires, who had sworn fealty to Madame, but hoped some day to ride to Rennes, and win their spurs in the lists of their Lord Duke. For the present they were content to remain out on the lonely coast, where Courtois taught them the articles of knighthood, and where twenty stout henchmen could look up to them as superiors. These were David Le Petit, Anselme the Steward, Alix, Courtois, and a young peasant woman, who had come to foster the infant of Madame Lenore, comprised the attendance of the three ladies of Crepuscule. It was a well-knit little company, and one so accustomed to the quiet life, that none of them, save only one, desired better things. 
Of the mood of Alix during these summer months, much might be said. Throughout the spring, she had been in a state of hot desire for what was not in Le Crepuscule. She was filled with unrest, but her plans were too vague, too indefinite for immediate action. Strong as was the will that would have carried her through any difficulty that lay not in the condition of her heart, she was still, after nearly six months of dreaming and debating, in Le Crepuscule. Still she labored through the long, dull mornings, and still, through the afternoons, she drifted about through moving seas of doubt and yearning. She longed for the world, but she could not give up Le Crepuscule and those whom it held. Here was her problem. Which way to turn? She felt that another such winter as she had just passed would drive her senses from her. But she knew that anywhere outside the crepuscule, the visions of three faces, the fair, sad faces of her ladies, would haunt her by day and by night till she should return to them at last. She carried her struggle always with her, and at length it drove her to seek an old-time solitude. She began to spend her afternoons in a cave in the great cliff north of that on which the castle stood. This cave had been formed by the action of the water, and it stretched in cavernous darkness far into the wall of rock, much farther than Alix had ever dared to go. Near the entrance, four or five feet above the tide-washed floor, was a little ledge where she was accustomed to sit till the rising water drove her to the upper shore. Tides, in Brittany, are proverbially high, and at full tide the top of the cave's opening was scarcely visible above the water. So it behooved Alix to restrain herself from sleep while she lay therein, meditating on her other life. On the 19th of July, the tide was at low ebb at half-past two in the afternoon, and at three o'clock Alix entered the cave and climbed, dry-shod, up to her ledge of rock. Here, as she knew, she was safe for two hours, if she chose to stay so long. The interior of this cave was by no means an uninteresting place. Though Alix had never yet explored it beyond the space of twenty feet, where it was bright with the daylight that poured in through its jagged entrance. After that it wound a darker way into the cliff, and the far recesses were lost in utter blackness. A spoken word directed toward the inner passageway would reverberate along that mysterious interior till one could not but be a little awed at the vast extent of the lost passage. The visible floor of the cavern was a thing of interest and beauty, for at low tide it was like a little park, where pools of clear seawater alternated with groves of filmy plants, small ridges of pebbles and rocks and patches of delicately ribbed sand, where every species of shellfish dwelt. At times, Alix spent hours in studying sea life in these places, and certainly, on hot summer afternoons, no pleasanter occupation could have been found. Probably others than Alix would have taken to it, were it not for the fact that the cave was the scene of one of the weirdest legends of the coast, and was held in avoidance as much by castle folk as by the peasantry. Alix, however, had long been held to possess some uncanny power over the people of the supernatural world, for she would venture fearlessly into the most unholy spots, emerging unharmed and undisturbed. Nor could any one ever learn from her whether or not she had actually held intercourse with the creatures whom they devoutly believed in, and so devoutly dreaded. Today, certainly, there was no suggestion of the uncanny about her as she lay upon her ledge of rock, looking off upon the sparkling waters that danced up to the very edge of her retreat. With one hand she shaded her eyes from the golden glare, and her head was pillowed on her other arm. Her usually smooth brow was puckered into a frown, for which the sun was not responsible, nor yet was Alix's mind upon any subject that might be supposed to anger or distress her. For the moment, she had dropped her inward debate, 
and was lazily watching the sea. The warmth of the afternoon had made her drowsy, and now the shadowy coolness of the cave soothed her till her vivid mental images had become a little blurred, and the sparkle of the water and its crispy rustle, as it advanced and retreated over the sand outside, was luring her mind into the fairy wastes of dreamland. She wondered a little whether she were awake or asleep, but, in point of fact, her eyes were not actually shut when a slender figure came round a corner of the entrance and slipped lightly into the cave. Alix started and sat up straight, while a high tenor voice cried out, Ho, Mistress Alix, tis thou then? Is't I that discovered thee in thy retreat, or thou that hast invaded mine? Oh, hey, David, thou startled me. Meseemeth I all but slept. Tis a day for sleep, but this is not the place. Is there room there on the ledge? Wilt let me up? Tis wet enough below here. Yeah, thy feet slop i' the sand, and thou'st frightened two crabs. Canst climb hither? He laughed merrily and scrambled up beside her, his light body seeming but a feather in weight. She made room beside her, and he sat down there, cocking one party-coloured knee upon the other, and beginning lightly. Thus bravely, then, thou comest into the cave of the water-goblin. Art thou, perchance, courted here by some sly water-sprite? The maiden, responding to his mood, laughed also. Not unless thou'lt plate the sprite, Master David. Say, wilt court me? Nay, sister, thou and I, and all of the castle up above, know each other in a way that admits no love-foolery. Hi-ho! The little man's tone had changed to one of whimsical earnestness. Alix made no immediate reply to his speech, and so, to entertain himself, he took from his open bag two pebbles, and began to toss them lightly into the air, one after the other. For a few seconds Alix watched him absently. Then she said, Those pebbles, David, are like thee and me. Watch now, which will be the first to fall from thy hand. Thou art the mottled, I the grey. And I, damsel, said he, as he began to handle them a little less carelessly, I who sit here forever, from my amusement tossing into the air two light souls, catching them when they come back to me, and flinging them again away, who am I, I ask? Thou, David? Alix's face took on a little bitter smile. Why, thou art that inexorable thing that men call God. Wilt never drop thy stones from their wearisome sphere, almighty one? They will not fall. They return to me evermore, he answered, and, after another toss or two, he let them both remain in his hand while he looked at them for a moment. After that he put them back into his bag again, with a curious smile. That, then, is our end, he remarked at last. Is it our end? David, David, shall I not leave Le Crepuscule to fare forth into the world? I dream and dream, and vow unto myself that I shall surely go, and then I still remain. Aye, there are things that keep thee here, and me too. There's the baby now, and its angel-faced mother. And then Madame, how is one to leave her when she is a little more alive than formerly? I too, Alix, have dreamed dreams. The fever of my boyhood, with its wanderings, its life, its continual change, comes upon me strong sometimes. Here in this place my wit lies buried, my soul grows grey within me, my eyes have forgot the look of the world's bright colours, and yet I stay on, I stay on for ever. How have we two went out together, David, thou and I? Think you the world might hold a place for us? I would be a good comrade, I promise thee. I would march stoutly at thy side, nor complain when weariness overcame me. We should not have always to beg for food, for I have a little bag. See, Alix, look. There below, on the sand, by that sharp-pointed stone, there is a grey-white crab. He must be hurt. 
See how he fumbles and struggles without avail to reach the little pool ten inches from him? Watch him. He makes no progress. Now that were thou and I, thrown upon the world. Oh, this place is full of omens. I have found them here before. Tis the witchery of the cave. Alix failed to smile. This last augury, though it confirmed the one that she herself had made, did not please her. She sat silent on the ledge, her feet hanging, her elbows on her knees, her head on her hand, watching intently all the little dramas taking place below her among the sea creatures. Nor was David in a mood to make conversation. So the two of them sat silent for a long time. How long a time neither of them knew. The water was growing more brightly golden under the beams of the fast-descending sun, and Alix noted the fact, but held her peace. It was David who, after a little while, suddenly exclaimed, Diable, Alix, see how the tide hath risen. We shall be wet enough getting out and back to the upper cliff. Come quickly. As he spoke, he slid from the ledge, landing in water that was up to his ankles. Quickly, Alix, I will steady thee. Come, thou'lt but be the wetter if thou stayest. Alix sat motionless upon the ledge above, and looked calmly down upon the dwarf. Reflect, David, how easy it were not to wet my ankles thus. How easy twould be just to sit here, until the stone should drop for the last time into the hand of God. David stood looking up at her, wide-eyed. The idea was slow to pierce his brain. Why, yes, said he, t'were easy enow, easy enow. Yet when I go, t'must be from mine own room, and by a clean dagger stroke. I care not to choke myself to death in a goblin's cave. Come, Alix, the water riseth. Go thou on, David. I can come down when I will, for I have traversed the way often. Come down. Nay, David, come down. Nay. The water was deeper by four inches than it had been when he first reached the bottom of the cave. The dwarf looked up at the girl, who sat smiling at him, and his face reddened slightly. Then, without more ado, he climbed back upon the ledge and sat down beside Alix, hanging his dripping feet toward the water, which now covered the tallest of the stones on the floor of the cave. David, thou must go. Climb down and save thyself quickly. Thy slender body cannot much longer breast the tide. David crossed his knees and clasped his hands around them. If thou stayest, I also will remain. I beg of thee, go, ere it is too late. Not without thee. In the name of God I ask it. We two were together in God's hand. Then so be it, David. Sit thou here beside me. We will wait together. The little man did not reply to her this time, and Alix felt no more need for speech. They sat there, occupied with their own thoughts, both watching, under the spell of a peculiar fascination, how the green water was mounting, mounting toward them. The cave was filled with blinding light from the setting sun. The roar of the ocean, a voice mighty and ineffable, filled all their consciousness. White-crested breakers rolled in and broke below them, and their faces were wet with chill salt spray. The water in the cave was waist-deep. Alix was growing cold. A deadly intoxication stole upon her senses, and she bent far over the ledge to look into the swirling, foamy green below her. "'By the Almighty God, his creation is wondrous. This is a scene worthy of the end,' cried David, suddenly, in a hoarse, emotional tone. Alix started violently. The sound of a human voice, breaking in upon the universal murmur of the infinite waters, sent a sudden staff to her heart. In a quick flash, she beheld Lenore's baby holding out its feeble hands to her. Near it stood Lore, the penitent, and, on the other hand, Madame, with her great, grave, sorrowful eyes fixed full upon herself, Alix. David, cried the girl, suddenly, wildly, above the roar of the tide. David, we must escape! 
Quickly, quickly, quickly! As she spoke, she left the ledge to find herself swaying almost shoulder-deep in the fierce, swelling water. Come, she cried, her face livid with her newborn terror. For an instant, David looked down upon her with something resembling a smile. Then he followed her, and would have been carried off his feet in the water had not Alix steadied him with one hand, while, with the other, she clung to the rock above her head. The sudden chill woke David's senses, and he said sharply, "'We must hurry, Alix. There is no time to lose.' Then the two of them began their work of getting out of the cave. David, with his small, lithe body clad in tight-fitting hosen and jerkin, started to swim lightly through the water, diving head-foremost into the beating breakers, and rounding toward the shore with rather a sense of pleasurable skill than anything else. But with Alix, the case was different. Her long skirts were soaked with water and clung disastrously about her feet. The idea of her swimming was vain, and she grimly gave thanks for her height. But she found that the matter of walking had its dangers, too. The bottom of the cave and the outer stretch that lay between her and safety was very uneven. She stumbled over rocks and sank into sudden hollows, continually hampered by her clinging skirts. Presently she fell, and a great breaker came tumbling over her. In it she lost her self-control, and was presently rolling helpless in the tide, gasping in seawater with every terrified breath, and unable to get her limbs free from their binding, clinging robe. Alix was very near death in earnest, now, and she knew it. Presently, where a sweeping wave left her head for a moment above water, she sent one hoarse, guttural shriek toward David, who had regained the land, and he turned, horrified, to look at her. She heard his cry of amazement and distress, and then she was rolled upon her face, and knew nothing more till she found herself lying on the sand, with David bending over her, whiter than death, and trembling like a woman. She was dizzy and weak and sick, and her lungs ached furiously. Yet with it all, she saw David's distress, and managed to keep herself conscious by staring at him fixedly. "'Up, Alix, up!' he muttered. "'Thou must get up to the castle. I cannot carry thee there, and here thou'lt perish.' Up, I say, here, hold to my belt. See, the water is upon us again. With an effort that seemed to her to be superhuman, Alix struggled to her feet. He held her dripping skirts away from her so that she could walk as little hampered as possible. And though she staggered and reeled at every step, they still made progress, and were halfway up the cliff before she collapsed again, utterly exhausted. Happily, at that moment, David spied the figure of Lore at the top of the cliff, and he cried to her with all the strength that was left him to come down. In a moment she was beside them, staring in silent astonishment at their plight. "'The demoiselle Alix had a fancy for bathing. She hath bathed,' observed David. Alix did not speak, but suddenly her eyes met Lore's, and she burst into hysterical laughter. Lore, being a woman, realized that she was strained to the point of collapse, so she bade David go on before them and take all precautions to recover from his bath, and then, as soon as Alix signified her ability to go on again, Laura put one of her strong, young arms about the dripping body, and sustaining more than half her weight, succeeded in getting her to the castle. Alix demurred faintly about going in, for she dreaded questions. But it was that hour of the day when the open rooms of the castle were deserted, when all the world was asleep or at play, and, as the two crossed the courtyard and went through the lower hall, they met no one but a pair of henchmen who were too respectful of Laura to voice their curiosity. As the young women went through the upper hall, on their way to Alix's room, there came, from behind Lenore's closed door, the gurgling crow of the baby. At this sound, Alix shuddered, and through her heart shot a pang of horrified remorse at the crime she had so nearly committed. A few moments later, the exhausted girl lay in her bed, wrapped round with blankets, 
her dripping garments stripped away, and her body glowing again with the warmth of vigorous friction, while her wet hair was fastened high on her head, away from her face. When Laura had removed, as far as possible, every evidence of the escapade, she bent for a moment over the pillow of her foster sister, and then stole quietly away. Alix made no sign at her departure. She lay back in the bed, her eyes closed, her face set like marble, her mind wandering vaguely over the events of the afternoon. Gradually, her world grew full of misty, creeping shadows, and she was on the borderland of sleep, when someone again bent over her, and the fragrant breath of hot wine came to her nostrils. With an effort, she shook her eyes open to find Laura's kindly face above her, and Laura's hand holding out to her a silver cup. Drink, Alix, twill give thee strength. Obediently, Alix drank, and the posset sent a new glow of warmth through her body. Now, if thou canst, thou must sleep. Alix sent a thoughtful glance into her companion's eyes, and there was something in her look that caused Lore to take both of the trembling hands in her own, and to wait for Alix to speak. Nay, Lore, nay, I cannot sleep till I have told thee. Someone I must tell. Someone that will understand. Let me confess to thee. Lore seated herself on the edge of the bed, Alix still retaining her hands, and Lore's sad eyes looked down upon the drawn face of her foster sister while she spoke. Alix, she said softly, Methinks I know thy confession. Thou hast tried to leave Le Crepuscule, is it not so? Alix's eyes suddenly filled with tears. It is so. I tried to leave Le Crepuscule. The last she only whispered faintly. But it drew thee back again. The castle would not loose its hold on thee. Even so was it with me. Methought I hated it, Alix, with its loneliness and its shadows and its vast silences. Yet however far away I was, I found it always before my eyes, or hidden in my thoughts. Through my hours of highest happiness I yearned for it, and it drew me back to it at last. It is true, it is true, I know thou speakest truth. And thou wilt not try again to go away, my sister? Not again, oh, not again. I could see you all, you and Madame and Madame Lenore, and your eyes called me back. It is my home, is not? I have a place here, have I not? Ah, Lore, thou'st been so good to me. Shall we not, thou and I, go back again into our childhood, and dream of naught better than dwelling here forever in this place? Both of us have sinned, and now we are come home into the shadow of the Castle of Twilight, for forgiveness' sake. End of chapter 15